Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. And Greg is back. Greg, I missed you last week. It was very, uh, I, I was sad that I wasn't here, but I was, uh, interestingly enough, I was doing another Zoom for a, a, a military education uh, project called Seminar 21, which is a long oh, running kind of military education. They, they, it's been broadened out. There's all sorts of civilians involved now, but it's kind of mid-career education. And for the, God, I guess, 25 years, I've participated in, in one of the seminar series uh, for that, the, the class for that year on the Middle East. So I was zooming in to, uh, to, to talk to folks about the Middle East and uh, it was fun because I love to talk about the Middle East. Very nice. Well, uh, David Bradford and I chatted. He's a, a health economist friend of mine who I don't think you've met, but you, uh, you know of, um, as, uh, uh, just from my discussions of him. But we talked a little bit about uh, things from the health care and public health perspective, not from like uh, disaster and epidemiology, but uh, kind of the system, the health care system um, and some of the challenges this has presented. And we covered, you know, some of the, giving people some of the logic behind flatten the curve and why, uh, why the way in, in which we have social distance was so important, particularly at the spread, because we were, we were concerned both about the spread, but also, uh, re going over peak capacity for the hospitals. And uh, he kind of gave that argument for the listeners. So right. uh, we, worked, we worked through that last week in kind of our continuing series on uh, COVID-19. And one of the things that we haven't really talked about is some of the uh, governance angles of it and what it means for the particular governance context of the U.S., which is a, uh, a federalist ruling system. And so, you know, as you and I were talking beforehand, I think it'd be kind of interesting to dive into that a little bit. And also what I'd like to do um, is, as we have uh, guests, we're doing a live Zoom again. Uh, we'd like to take questions and interact with you. We actually have a state government expert with us. Um, that's a friend of mine that might jump in with some comments or some questions as we're talking through the federalism angle. How does all that sound to you, Greg? All good. Let me say one thing about the hospital stuff, because I... You know, this is this is not particularly academic, but I, I've got a, a my sister is uh, the head emergency room nurse for a, a hospital back in in our hometown of Wilmington, Delaware. And I was zooming with her and my other siblings on Easter and I was asking her, you know, are you guys overburdened? And she goes just the opposite because, uh, you know, she's not in the covid wing. Right. Uh, she's in in the E.R., and she said, all this social distancing, we're just, you know, we're not getting, we're not getting shootings, we're not getting car accidents. And, and so it's, it's actually interesting that, you know, when we, I think when we plan the hospital, you know, thinking about not overstressing the, 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 the healthcare system, and we saw Italy and, and all where, you know, it was clearly overstressed, we kind of didn't factor in how social distancing was going to decrease the the uh, call on hospital services that were non-COVID related. And also we're, we're getting the, the, you know, some evidence that people are dying in their homes, right? Because they don't want to go to the hospital because they think the hospital's full of COVID patients. And, and so I, I think we have some data from New York City where they're getting, you're getting more deaths in the home than you, than you would in a normal period because people are reluctant to go to the hospital, either because they, they've heard that the hospitals are over, you know, overstressed, or because they think if they go to the hospital, they're going to get uh, COVID. So it's, it's kind of this interesting, unex, uh, you know, uh, uh, unexpected results from these social, you know, when, when, these kind of social interactions when people are, are, are making decisions that, you know, we can't always anticipate. Yeah, I've heard some uh, similar commentary anecdotally as well uh, from uh, from kind of uh, rural parts of Georgia um, that, that people that have friends working with hospitals say in the regular ER that things are way down. Um, and it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, with everyone being home and uh, uh, not going out, not driving. And also, if, you know, if you get sick uh, and it's not uh, – 
you know, doesn't, it's not the same symptoms as COVID-19, you're probably trying to stay home because <laughs> you don't want to be in the, um, uh, in the hotspot of the hospital. Um, I can say to my, I have a grandfather who's 85 and his, all his doctor's appointments have been pushed. Um, they don't want him anywhere near the physician's office. Um, and then I've had an, another family member who's had some, some heart issues, um, and was able quickly in, in Georgia, in the Georgia setting to get a uh, heart surgery. So those are interesting pieces of pushing back routine visits from an elderly, uh, person who can probably afford to wait to something more pressing like a artery blockage. Um, they're still, at least in Georgia right now, have the resources to provide, provide that healthcare. It is. Uh, yeah. And the, un it's just a, yet another example, the unintended consequences of, of decision-making, which I think is, uh, it's, it, it, I don't know how many lessons you can take from it, except to just expect the unexpected when you're, when you're making, you know, decisions that affect, how millions of other people make decisions. Yeah. So let's jump right into some of the governance uh, aspects we were talking about. You know, one of the things that would have been in the headlines today, we're recording on uh, Tuesday, April 14th, is that uh, a team, I guess, of governors are kind of pulling some of their responses together as kind of a response team from some of the states that have been the hardest and seems to be kind of targeted at a uh, in response to a lack of uh, a lack of federal leadership that they could trust in, or that was kind of being as helpful as they wanted it to be. What's your what's your take of kind of what's going on on the ground as we start thinking about how to you know respond as we hopefully are, it looks like we have some evidence that at the national numbers we are flattening the curve a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it does seem to me that yesterday we might look back at yesterday as a, as an interesting turning point in the politics of the response to the coronavirus crisis. Uh, the president was uh, extremely emphatic yesterday. That might be the kindest uh, term one can use for the performance. Uh, he, and, and, uh, uh, and, and it was, it was, uh, Aside from the, the kind of the defensiveness reacting to, I think, the, the articles, particularly the New York Times article over the weekend that detailed the decision-making process in the Trump administration and pointed out uh, what I think many people would see as some of the failures in that process. Uh, I think the president was also kind of rattled by the fact that these governors are, are uh, kind of forming regional uh, coalitions to try to manage the whole issue of quote unquote reopening the the country, reopening the economy. And he, he pushed back very hard on that, uh, you know, asserting in a very kind of uh, unique way in American constitutional history that the president has absolute power over the states in a time of crisis. Uh, and, you know, I guess, there are times when one can argue that, that, that we have seen that kind of uh, the takeover of federal, federal control of the takeover of states. But uh, here we're clearly seeing governors pushing back against uh, the notion that the president is going to make the decisions on how the economy uh, gets restarted after this period of, I don't know what we want to call it, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Paul Krugman in the New York Times calls it putting the economy into an induced coma, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, which is not an unreasonable way to think about it, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we could be set up for a real kind of constitutional challenge where the president says we should be lifting social distancing requirements <clears throat> And uh, governors in concert with each other in certain regions say, well, no, we're not ready to do that yet. And uh, I have no idea what will happen after that, but it will set up some very interesting questions about federalism. So one, one thing that it, it dawned on me as, as you were kind of laying out uh, some of what's happening is, I, you know, part of it also has to be a frustration with just the way in which this particular situation has played out right because 
at the beginning, you would have hoped that there was a national coordinated strategy in partnership with the states to help respond as things were unfolding. And part of the, the argument or part of um, the criticism from that time period was that the, the Trump administration sort of abdicated that role and instead said, hey, this is really a local issue. You need to figure it out at the state level. It's, there's going to be hot spots at different times. So we're here to kind of support you, but this is a state, a state decision. In some states, um, like uh, some of the ones I've been following, Georgia and, and Texas, both to some degree, then mirrored the same thing at the state level and said to the localities, you know, this is really a, a localities issue. So I think, you know, localities need to, to you know, take that decision-making authority. And, you know, some of that's changed at the state level. Um, uh, there's been different orders come down from the, the governor's office since then. Um, but it is interesting, uh, aside from the federalism issue, which, I, which all of this is kind of embedded within the federalism issue, but just from the, how this particular timeline has played out for then now, at this point, after the states have been forced to compete for masks and compete for ventilators and are out on their own, then now the president is making the argument that now, not in the time of responding to the initial piece, now he has the kind of absolute authority to unilaterally make the decision of when states will open back up. Well, you know, which is it, right? Is, it, is the decision-making authority with the states and right. that's good because it's localized and we need to have some coordination, but in general you want at the local level for people to respond, or is it that the federal government definitely knows when we need to reopen, they'll be making all the decisions like in this responding to the same crisis, the about face of just from a decision-making process is pretty, it's pretty wild. Yeah. And I, I think that we can talk about this in theory, but in practice, it's going to, you know, we're, we're going to roll back into, you know, more quote unquote normal, whatever that's going to mean life in fits and starts, right? I mean, New York City is going to be different from uh, rural counties in Texas, and, and it should be. And, and so I, I, that does argue for, for delegating a lot of the, the, the decision-making authority on things like shelter in place, stay at home and all to, you know, local, whether that's at the state level or at the county level. Uh, but obviously the, the economy is a national issue and the president is, uh, is worried about it, uh, legitimately worried about the economy. He's also politically worried. I mean, we are in an election year. Uh, the Democratic primaries are over in, in, for all intents and purposes. Uh, you know, Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. And, uh, and, and, and so the president is undoubtedly thinking about the general election in the same way that Democrats are thinking about the general election. And, and it's, um, so the economy is a national issue, but I can't see a national strategy for quote unquote reopening that would make sense for, you know, rural Texas, New York City, Seattle, San Francisco, and Detroit. I mean, I, I, it, some of this yeah. stuff I think has to be done at the local level. And I think a lot of the commentary that I've seen recently on this, because we're kind of getting back to an argument that we had a couple of weeks ago, uh, a public policy argument about uh, are the costs of our shelter in place, social distancing policies greater than the costs of, uh, that, are, that, that are inherent in the closing down of large chunks of the economy, which I think is a legitimate argument to have. I personally come down on the side of the, of the scientists on this, not the, not the business people. And I'll, I'll listen to, to Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and, and other uh, people trained in epidemiology and medicine before I'll listen to Peter Navarro and, and, uh, and, and, and you know, CEOs who call, call the president in the evening. But, but, it's a, but it's a legitimate argument because there are, there's pain on both sides, right? Uh, so I, I, I understand why this argument is coming back up. But it does seem to me that, that 
an assertion of presidential power on this is going to run into, on this, that is to say, the quote-unquote reopening, is going to run into all sorts of legal and constitutional blockages. Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> as part of the discussion, uh, there are at least two people in the audience that I know are state experts. So if they have any, in, uh, any questions that they'd like to ask um, or would also like to jump in here in a little bit um, and we start moving to the Q&A to talk about some of the, what you see as a state role, uh, those of you that are here that have some of those roles, if you're interested, uh, if you're interested in joining by audio, uh, shoot a message in the chat box to Faith if you have just regular questions um, you'd like us to discuss also. Um, just post them uh, in the chat box. So, yeah, so, I mean, I think that plays out, you know, to your point, Greg, that one, a one size fits all federal strategy certainly doesn't work. Um, but what might have been helpful or what could still be helpful is, is gathering all the governors together on some type of committee or some type of planning process where the federal government plays the lead in, in gathering the officials together thinking about different strategies, thinking about different ways in which the federal government can target responses that would be helpful to them. But that hasn't been the federal government's response. So what have states tried to do instead? Well, some states that are starting to move on into the phase of maybe flattening their curve are trying to do that just kind of on their, kind of on their own. Is that, is that sort of your read of what's, of what's the, the latest has been? Yeah, I, I mean, I find it I find it fascinating that these states are are forming kind of regional compacts, and we'll see how practical that is, right? We'll see how practical it is for you know Washington, Oregon, and California to coordinate. I think the states on the East Coast were Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and and Delaware. So uh, on the West Coast, all Democratic governors, right? Uh, on, on the East Coast, one Republican governor, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if Lawrence Hogan, the Republican governor of, of Maryland, might join into that compact as well. But uh, how they're going to cooperate, I, I don't know. And, I, you know, I do want to make clear, uh, because I, I was sounding like a, like a real, uh, a real federal, uh, kind of a real uh, federalist absolutist to some extent, <laughs> you know, that there's role. I mean, only the federal government could have passed the $2 trillion CARES Act, right? Uh, no state has that kind of, of fiscal capacity. Uh, and, and so the, the effort by the, 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 the federal government to step into this huge economic hole that's been created by, by having to put the economy on, on, on an induced coma uh, is, is obvious. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, obviously, uh, you know, I do think the federal role has to be important, but it's, I, I'm not sure how we're going to calibrate the economic power of the feds, which has always kind of been the way in modern times that they've imposed themselves on the states, i.e., you want money from the federal government, do this. Mm -hmm. And states have to have money from the federal government, and so that's what they do. Um, so... Uh uh, on kind of this financing and funding piece and how it's different across the federal, state, and local levels. Through our, uh, through our chat box, I think one of our guests is, uh, has actually published some things in public finance at the state level. Um, and uh, are you there? Can you, can you hear us, Tyler? I can indeed. All right. Is it okay if I just introduce you? Have at it. Well, as long as you're nice about it. Uh, well, I won't, I won't say anything true except basic, <laughs> basic, basic information. Um, so with us tonight is uh, a long, uh, old friend of mine from college, uh, Dr. Tyler Reinagle. We both got our PhDs from the University of Georgia back uh, in the mid-2010s. And he now works in state government. And state government was, uh, state and local government was his specialty in his studies so tell us a little bit from kind of thinking about this from a funding and federalism angle, how, you know, how, how reliant are states going to be on the federal government in this, in this time of pausing the economy and pausing the revenues? What's some of your insight into this? 
Well, I'll tell you, I think there, there will definitely be some long-term reliance on the federal government, but in, in my role with, uh, with the state, I get to work hand-in-hand hand with many, many local governments across the state of Georgia. And the bigger issue that uh, really seems to be coming to the forefront in my conversations with local officials is the pressing end of the budget year. Uh, in a lot of communities across the state and in 40-plus states across the country, the fiscal year ends on June 30th. And balanced budget requirements are commonplace in probably 45 or so different states across the country and just about every local government across the country. And being in a position now where you can't have public forums, where you can't have council or commission meetings, uh, it's become a very tricky predicament to get a budget put together to be ready to go on July 1st when that new fiscal year starts. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know state governments are having similar concerns because in a lot of instances, it's a part-time legislature that's working on putting together this budget and they're not able to meet because of these uh, stay-at-home requirements or the ban on gatherings, which would include a legislature. Uh, so the, the more pressing concern is that they're really getting behind on that traditional calendar for having a budget ready to go on July 1 yeah. and shutting down police at the local level, shutting down fire at the local level, these are really not options that are on the table. So it's going to have to, to demand some really creative and really expeditious problem solving on their part. And then also taking into consideration that the revenue streams are going to change dramatically. You know, I'll speak to Georgia just because I know it most intimately, almost 70% of state revenue is coming in from either the individual income tax or from sales and use tax. Well, we see the skyrocketing unemployment, which intuition would dictate is going to result in lower individual income tax payments. Yeah. And we've also seen consumer spending fall with, by virtue of folks being at home and not being out spending money. So these are, you know, like I said, 70% of the state revenue that's going to take a major hit. And local governments are going to feel much of the same effect, particularly when it comes to sales tax and excise tax on things like uh, hotel stays or rental so there, there are a lot of fiscal considerations that are going to have direct impact at the state and local level where we feel it most intimately and most daily uh, in terms of service delivery. Yeah, one, um, so, so one thing for people to keep in mind if you're listening and you, and you don't know, of course, there's funding for government programs across federal, state, and local. They play different roles. And one of the things that Tyra was mentioning is that state and local governments have these balanced budget requirements, which... It's essentially um, uh, not all of them, but almost all of them have requirements where their revenues have to match their expenses, unlike, uh, well, loosely put, um, and whereas at the federal government that you can run up a deficit year after year after year. And one of the, one of the reasons why this is important for what we're talking about is things like uh, police departments are funded at the, the local and state level in large part. And so if these institutions have balanced budget requirements, and their revenues are being cut towards the end of their budget, that means that expenses have to be cut somewhere. So we might find ourselves in a position where we can't pay law enforcement, where we can't pay public health officials, where we can't pay people that provide the basic services to communities. Tyler, um, one follow-up question for you, uh, if you don't mind, which is do you have any thoughts about how we could be proactive? Uh, are there, are there uh, sources of revenue already in place from the federal government? Do you have any kind of potential or specific ideas for how we can, you know, help stabilize some of these budgets and make sure we can have basic services at the local level? Absolutely. The, the biggest opportunity is going to be in the form of grant funding from the federal government. Uh, most prominently and the one that would probably be most well-known among folks is the Community Development Block Grant or CDBG program. And these funds, I know people have been harping on it the last couple of weeks and I'll join that chorus, uh, filling out the census and making sure that we know where you live in terms of city, in terms of county, in terms of state is critically important in driving those funds from the federal government down to the state and local level. Uh, they're going to go to where they're most needed, where we have the most population. So making sure that you are counted and making sure that your presence is known in your community by virtue of the census is going to be critically important in making sure that those grant funds get channeled down from the feds to the states and localities. Very good. Tyler, Thank you, Tyler. Tyler, good, let, good. Me, let me ask you, uh, there's absolutely no way I assume that the state of Georgia can balance its budget without some kind of federal intervention uh, in the near term. 
and and my understanding is that the 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 packages that have gone through Congress so far don't include kind of block grants to the states. Uh, what's going to happen on 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 July one in in Georgia if there's not a if there's not a block grant from the federal government to help make up the the decline in both income and sales taxes? That is a very good question, and uh, there's I'm sure a lot of behind closed door conversation happening to kind of get to that. Uh, I, I hate the word and I've demanded a 90 day moratorium on its usage once this is all said and done, but it is unprecedented territory. Um, it is completely uncharted and I don't know that our state or really any state has found themselves in a situation akin to this. Uh, so hopefully there are some creative problem solving discussions going on behind closed doors. And when our legislature does reconvene, hopefully have uh, something that will make sure that Georgians don't suffer and, and Texans don't suffer out y'all's way uh, and really anywhere in the country. But it is going to take some creative problem solving. And one of the things uh, I still teach from time to time, and as Justin mentioned, I still do some research from time to time. Uh, one of the things I harp on is that revenue diversity equals revenue stability. Uh, if you are overly reliant on any one single revenue stream, whether that be income tax, sales tax, property tax, if you are over-reliant on it, you are going to feel the punch at some point. And I think this is going to be the point for a lot of those jurisdictions that have found themselves over-reliant, particularly on income and sales taxes. But there's, but there's really no revenue source that's going to survive this, I mean, what, what we're looking at now. I mean, you're, Yeah, you're going to see a hit in property values. So yeah. property tax revenue for cities and counties and school districts is going to take a hit. Obviously, we see this huge spike in unemployment that's not likely to come down as quickly as it went up. So we'll feel that punch as well. Consumer spending, I think, you know, there, there's reasonable argument to be made on both sides. And of course, uh, the, the discussion of nexus and the taxation of online sales, uh, thankfully, that's behind us and a lot of communities are reaping the benefits of it. But yeah, like you said, Greg, they, the, every revenue stream we have for state, local and federal government, for that matter, is going to take a hit through this and it's not going to be a quick rebound. I have no doubt about that. I mean, I don't see any alternative to some kind of federal block grant going to the states basically just to fill, to fill budget holes so you can maintain police services, you can maintain, uh, I mean, the, the unemployment benefits that, that get paid to, to at least a partial extent out of state funds. Uh, it just it just doesn't seem like it, 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 you can sustain the kind of governance level that you need in this crisis without uh, the feds coming in and and filling the budget holes of the states. But of course, when you do that, the feds can can bring uh, what do I want to say? They're uh, stipulations. <laughs> stipulations. Yeah. Stipulations. Right. Uh, <laughs> mandates. Maybe this, maybe in this case, funded mandates, but mandates. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Whatever it is, it's going to need to be very quick action because, like I mentioned before, the overwhelming majority of states have fiscal years that end on June 30th, which means there's got to be some sort of funded funding in place for all of these programs come July 1. And while it's only mid-April, I think everybody here knows how quickly or not quickly uh, government bureaucracy moves. Well, and, and as you said, I mean, legislatures, which frequently – meet up into the, at the end of that budget period in order to get the next year's budget done, uh, might not be able to meet. And, and in talking, uh, you know, as Justin and I were talking before about the, the, the potential for, uh, uh, you know, a real, a real rollicking constitutional confrontation between governors who uh, don't want to follow President Trump's uh, instructions in terms of, of uh, lifting social distancing policy, hypothetically, uh, and a president who wants to be able to reopen, uh, quote unquote, reopen the economy, uh, these kinds of block grants can become maybe the lever through which the federal government can, uh, can force states to follow uh, the, uh, the White House's desires on these things. Uh, that, I think that'll be a very interesting thing to watch. So Tyler, the, the final question for you is, uh, and sparked by a comment in the chat box, um, 
do you think that uh, alcohol and tobacco sales can just make up for the uh, <laughs> for the rest of the lost in revenue, given that everyone is coming? I'm doing my part. If we're selling enough alcohol in this country to fill the void from income tax and broader sales and use tax, then we probably have got a much more substantial problem. <laughs> yeah, we're not Russia quite yet. Yeah. <laughs> It'll help, but it certainly will not fill that void. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, thanks T. Um, if, uh, if you have any other things you want to jump in as we continue talking, jump back in, you have, uh, you have my permission. And, um, uh, if there's any other questions as we're kind of moving the conversation along, add them into the chat box. If, uh, like tower, you'd like to visit with us, uh, via video, uh, we're happy to kind of try that out with the crowd we have tonight. Just let faith know and she can, uh, unmute you, uh, if you have a question in a little bit. Um, Greg, you know, one of the things you mentioned now talking about uh, a crisis of federalism has me thinking about how things play out in other countries. And I'm going to tap into your international affairs expertise here. Um, what happens in countries where states become a little bit more fractured and who has the power and what the clear lines of authority are and who has power on the ground? to enforce things like how does that play out if you have a if if a team of governors take another step right and they refuse to pay federal uh, taxes on something because the they need that money to respond to coronavirus like how does this what does this look like in other contexts so i i don't think that there's that many cases of federalism a la the united states i mean i i think that they're mostly in the western hemisphere right canada is even more a uh, decentralized federal system than we are. The, the provinces have more power than the American states do. Uh, uh, I'm not a specialist on Latin America, but I understand that, that, that a number of Latin American countries kind of, uh, you know, from, from 18th century independence times, looking at the United States as a model, adopted a, a formally federalist systems, Mexico, obviously, is a federalist system with, with, with uh, elected state governments now. Uh, the part of the world that I'm more familiar with is, is the Middle East, and, and there is no federalism there. Uh, it's very centralized control. So you can get, uh, for example, in Saudi Arabia, which has been hit by coronavirus, just like everybody else has been hit, uh, the, the, uh, the national government, in essence, closed the country down. I mean, the, the, in the major cities, there's 24-hour curfew right now. Uh, you can only go out for, for, to get food and for medical care, basically. Uh, travel among the provinces in Saudi Arabia uh, is, is forbidden. Uh, and, uh, wow. and while uh, we know that in, in uh, some American states, uh, the state police are checking people as they come in across the state border uh, and, and, you know, saying if you're going to stay, you have to go into 14 day quarantine and you have to report where you are and all. I don't think that there's any state in America that can actually cut off travel from another state. Uh, but in Saudi Arabia, the, the, the central government enforced that on, on a country that, you know, it doesn't have as many people as the United States anywhere near about population of about 30 million overall, but it, it's as big as, as the United States east of the Mississippi. So, so pretty big land area. Uh, you know, when you talk about local governors refusing to send the tax money to the central government, that's, that's in the, in the history of the Middle East, that's called a rebellion. <laughs> that's, 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 that's called, that's called, uh, that's called a rebellion. And, and, uh, you know, historically we've had that in the time of the Ottoman empire, but, uh, in, in kind of modern independent Middle Eastern states, post-World War II, uh, the central, the, the authority of the central government, whether it be in Turkey or Iran or Egypt or Saudi Arabia or, uh, smaller states like Israel and Jordan, has been absolute and, and the places where you see this kind of local autonomy now in the Middle East are the places that are in civil war. 
right? Syria and Yemen and Libya and uh, to a lesser extent, Iraq. Iraq actually is the one Middle East case where you kind of have a constitutional federalism with the Kurdish regional government having all sorts of, of independent powers from Baghdad. So, yeah, I mean, I think we'd have to get on people who knew something about Latin America, which we're trying to do. We're trying to get our colleagues who know stuff about Latin America to come on and talk. You know, it might be interesting to see how federalism in Mexico is working. Uh, we, we have kind of a, an opposite case of a federal government that has not uh, stepped in and tried to enforce uh, social distancing or shelter in place or re even recommended that as far as I know in Mexico. And so I imagine that the state governments have more uh, leeway in Mexico, but it would be interesting to get somebody who actually knows something about Mexico. Ah, that's what we'll come have in to and, do. And talk about that. So we're gonna, we're gonna try to do that, if not this semester, but uh, when, we, when we get back rolling in the fall, uh, and, and maybe we'll learn something about federalism uh, in, the re in the rest of the Western Hemisphere. Well, um, just a reminder that if you do have some questions, uh, feel free to jump in. We got about 10 or 15 more uh, um, minutes to move along. One thing that we haven't talked about, Greg, um, that is something that I've been thinking a little bit as we've been thinking about how to move forward and how to um, respond to continue having mitigation efforts as we make a plan for when we might reopen the economy and how, and there's a lot of different ways of thinking about this. And um, a lot of them involve doing a lot of testing and then tracing of, yeah. of cases. And you can also do that in, um, in a lot of different ways. One of the things, one of the proposals that I've heard uh, to one, one came out of uh, the white house early on and the more recent one that I was reading uh, came from a, a think tank and one was this idea that Google would kind of take some sort of lead on uh, doing some testing and, and tracking basic testing information. The second uh, idea that I've seen is everyone having to download an app on their phone. Uh, oh, and I, I, I jumped the gun. I jumped the gun. You I did. You the, did. You were reading my mind. Uh, and that's the other big one, right, is some of the suggestions that I've seen are, you know, well, just have people download an app before they can get their results. And then we can just track them at all times to see where they go. And, you know, I'm, so I've been uh, a, a fan of deferring to the public health experts. I think that uh, the social distancing stuff has been kind of very much a necessary practice to save lives. I think we need um, testing. We need to do some tracing of the testing, but uh, come <laughs> But come on, are we completely missing the picture of kind of like uh, the way in which that market already works for selling our data and using it to sell more products to us and then just kind of giving that over either to an app from Google or directly over to the to the government being able to be on your phone all the time? It's like we have to have some lines around this conversation of privacy and, and public health response. Says you. Says me. I got to tell you, you lock people up for a month. They'll, they'll, I think they'll give away all of their privacy to be able oh, yeah. to go back and, and lead public lives. Uh, I, 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 I think that people who worry about privacy in that context, although I think that, you know, they're right, that there are real issues here. I, I think that they would be in a tiny minority. You know, I already got, you know, I, I can imagine people saying, I've already got so many apps on my phone. You know, mm -hmm. one more app where Google and, and Apple know, uh, you know, who, who I came into contact with. So to protect me, because if they get COVID, then I'll be informed. I, I you know, the longer people are locked up, the more I think people will say, you know, we'll worry about this privacy thing later. Tell me where I can download that app. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, mean, you, I think you're right. I mean, I mean, this was this was the response to, in a different slightly context. I mean, this is a response to 9/11, for example. Was we're okay to with being surveilled? Take the information if it makes us safer. Um, and it seems like that will be the same argument now as well. I, I would assume. I mean, 
you know, one would hope that, that the advances in, text, in testing would come fast enough that, you know, we could ramp up tests. You know, one, one of the plans being, being, you know, discussed on the internet is, is from an economist, a Nobel Prize winning economist, right? Uh, Philip Romer, I think his name is. I've seen this, yeah, yep. Where, you know, everybody gets tested once every two weeks. But yep. that's, you know, how many millions of tests a day? So, uh, I mean, there would have to be some technological breakthrough where in essence, you could be tested once every two weeks with in essence, automatic results, you know, fit the 15 minute result. And, and if you, if you tested negative, go about your business. And if you tested positive, go home, self-isolate, wait for your symptoms to hit. Right. Uh, Look, I, I mean that, to me, that would be preferable to, you know, downloading another app and letting Google and Apple follow me even more than they do. But I don't know if we can scale up to that level. And, and the places that have had success, right, from what I know, and I'm no expert on this, but I try to read about it. You know, the places that have had success, like a South Korea or a Taiwan or a Singapore, and we wonder about Singapore because they're hitting, they just went on, total lockdown again because they're hitting a second wave uh the the way they flattened curves and 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 moved uh to lessen the restrictions on 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 personal mobility was through testing uh contact tracing and quarantining the people who have been exposed but we don't seem to be anywhere near that right no, I, I don't think so. I think, you know, um, we're ramping up some, uh, some testing, but not nearly on the scale that it needs to be. Um, there's not evidence. I mean, there's evidence and improvement, but not that we're getting anywhere to be able to execute what, what he's suggesting. I mean, right. everybody being tested every other week, right. millions a day is not something we're, we're prepared for. So here in the Brazos Valley, where I think we have fairly good public health infrastructure and I think a competent competent local authorities we we've uh, as of today as of this morning's paper and remember we, we have uh, 250,000 people in the county uh, I think that I think that there have been like 1200 tests administered in the Brazos, in Brazos County uh, yeah and I, I don't think that that's because uh, our, our medical officials in the county or our political officials aren't competent. I think that those are the, te- those are the numbers of tests that they have. I think yeah. that they would be testing more widely if they had the capability to do so. But this is, yeah. you know, this is one of those areas where, you know, if you, if you like the governors pushing back against President Trump, I'm not sure the governors can, can generate the kind of effort necessary to ramp up the, the level of testing that we've been talking about in the last few minutes. It, it seems like only the feds could do that. Yeah. And it does seem like that is from the public health experts I've been reading, listening to I mean, the ability to widespread testing seems to be essentially a prerequisite for really kind of loosening the reins on the social distancing. Um, and we're still not quite there. I got a question here from, uh, one of the listeners and one of our colleagues and Tyler, if you're still out there, I think this one would, uh, uh, would be helpful for you to speak to. The question reads, um, I'd love to hear how the state governments will react to funding the nonprofit sector. Aside from being reduced, what responsibilities will states have to continue funding nonprofits given the states will likely be relying on federal, sp- uh, federal funding support for basic budgets? My inquiry stems from government pushing social responsibility to local actors since the 1980s. How do we balance local actors providing services for the government when they do not have funding? So Tyler, any insight on as, as budgets are cut, what this is going to mean for nonprofits that are providing direct services on the ground, maybe from what you know about Georgia? That's a, a great question. And I think uh, particularly prudent as, as the, uh, whoever asked the question mentioned, this dates back really to the 80s where we started seeing state and local governments become more reliant on these nonprofit entities but I think a lot of it rides on whether these are in-kind grants out of the state or local budget 
or are these contractual relationships in which a nonprofit organization is acting as, for instance, the County Board of Health? Um, and in a lot of instances, it is that contracted service delivery, uh, which is not really all that new a phenomenon, but in a lot of instances, particularly those where it's an in-kind donation or some sort of pass-through to the nonprofit organizations, uh, I think you will probably see a lot of those getting slashed, if not cut entirely, uh, as these budget pressures and the, the severely reduced revenue streams become a reality for state, county, city governments across the country. Uh, but those, those contracted service deliveries, the ones that I mentioned first, you know, and oftentimes those are critical functions, critical services, uh, things like a county board of health. And those contracts obviously will need to continue in some fashion, uh, probably revisiting the scope of services, probably revisiting a lot of facets of those individual contracts. But those will have to, to continue as those are kind of non-negotiable functions of state and local governments. Great. Thanks. Thanks to you. That's really helpful. Greg, do you have anything? I got nothing on nonprofits. <laughs> we have plenty of, we, we have, a, we have plenty of colleagues at the Bush school who work that. And if I ever have any questions, I go to them. Yeah. And we should get some of them. Uh, we should get some of them on. We haven't had uh, Will Brown on in a while or Kenny or uh, Robbie or Ellie. We need to, we need to get them out joining us again. Um, I think that's most of, uh, so I've got, I've got one, I do, I do have one more thing that, right. that, that happened this week that I, I, I think we have to take note of. And that was the election in Wisconsin. Mm. And, and when we think about politics going forward in this election year, how are we going to vote? I think it's, it's just going to be an essential question. Uh, you know, the, the back and forth as to whether you were going to have in-person voting, whether the, whether the Wisconsin primary was going to be postponed, the, the fact that this went to the Supreme Court uh, was fascinating and troubling. I mean, do we, you know, the scenes of people in their, in their masks waiting in line to vote was troubling. I mean, I, I've, always, I, I've always loved Election Day and going to vote because it's a community event. Like, you feel like you're part of a community that's exercising uh, it's democratic rights to choose its leaders. And, uh, you know, cynical as I am, that always gives me a warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I do, I wonder if, you know, we have to, we have to be ready to vote from distance. And, and I think that's by mail. The president has, you know, been absolutely adamant that that will not, that will not happen. But again, it's the States that decide and organize their elections. And uh, I think it'll just be an extremely interesting thing to watch as we go forward because this is this has gotten very partisan too. Like immediately, right? Like it was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, some things, you know, you can see coming in, I guess you should see this one coming too, but it was it was a it was a amazing how quickly it went from well we could we could just do mail ballots. We have everybody's address. We could send, send mail ballots out. And then it was, you know, essentially, but that'll cause more, more people to vote potentially was like what some of the like immediate uh, kind of dialogue was, which was just, you know, kind of wild. And then to your point though, this is, it's going to be, it's going to be partisan on whether or not we should uh, push back the, 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 uh, the voting dates to try to do it in person or if we should try to start organizing to get mailing ballots as the system that works and all of this it was sort of going to be like with the stay at home order all of this is going to break down around uh around partisan lines which is, is just not really good for um uh, uh for your uh, support of your election processes and i i'm no expert on election law but i, I don't think that you can push back the 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 national elections in November. I mean, I think it's the, I think it's the first, I think, I think by statute, right. By congressional statute, it's the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And, and the constitution says when the president, when the new president takes power. And so you can't, you certainly can't push it back beyond inauguration day. Well, what's uh, good is we have a big group of governors that are being led by a 
federal agency that's coordinating our responses so that proactively we already know this is going to be a problem and we're putting systems in place right now. Did you know that, Greg? Hold on. <laughs> what, what alternate universe have you been living in? <laughs> oh, but it's so painful. I mean, it feels like that's something we should be able to do. <laughs> I mean, mail voting, you know, it, it does seem to be something that, uh, that has worked a number of states already have it right i think in what in oregon and utah most people vote by mail now anyway uh yeah i think it would be a real shame if we're not getting ready to to do that because who knows what the public health situation is going to be in november and we don't want to have a situation where people have to risk their health to vote yeah, that, that seems like a pretty pretty straightforward uh, policy concern that we should be coming up with some good solutions to. Um, and hopefully we do. We have a little bit of time. It's not tomorrow, so we do have a little bit of time. Yeah. So something that we can, uh, we can look at in the fall. Sounds good. Well, I think um, we're getting on the hour mark. Um, we are going to come to you probably at least twice more uh, to round out April. Um, and we should have a guest with us next week. Uh, so it won't just be uh, uh, Greg and I, but uh, we'll wait to confirm that with you as we send out event information this week. And uh, we'll catch you the last week in April and keep you updated. But then uh, shortly after, we'll probably take a little bit of, uh, of a break and figure out what kind of exciting uh, conversations we can bring to you in the fall. Um, thanks to those of you that are here. Um, I really appreciate y'all taking your time to come show up. Tyler, thanks for sharing some of your expertise. Um, thanks for the, for the questions and uh, hope you all come back next week for uh, another round. Greg, good to see you. Nice to see you, Justin. Tyler, thank you very much. And uh, everybody have a good week and stay safe. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you.